Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My pleasure to welcome you once again. Uh, this time we are going to deal with uh, the situation in Norway and I have two most distinguished people uh, joining me today. The first one is Professor Malcolm Langford. Malcolm is a professor of public law at the University of Oslo. He is the director of the Center on Experiential Legal Learning called CEL. Um, which is a center of excellence in education, and he is the co-director of the Center on Law and Social Transformation um, at the University of Bergen. He's a lawyer and social scientist. His publications span human rights, international investment, international development, comparative constitutionalism, technology, and the politics of legal profession. And then we have Tobias Mahler with us, Professor Tobias Mahler, um, who is a professor of law um, in, at the University of Oslo at the Center for Computers and Law there. Tobias uh, currently focuses on research related to the Signal project. Signal is a project that deals with uh, um, security in the internet, governance and network, analyzing the law is the long title. So it's about um, information security and law. He's a lawyer by profession. He has taught at the University of Oslo, the King's College London, Queen Mary College, Stockholm University and Stavanger University and has worked as a visiting fellow uh, inter alia in Stanford and at the Max Planck Institute uh, for Foreign and International Criminal Law in Freiburg in Germany. Tobias is by origin German and as I'm very proud to say, a former student of mine. So we met uh, many, many years ago um, in, in when, when um, Tobias was still very young uh, in Hanover because he was one of my very first master students there. It's a long, long time ago. Very proud to have you in this new role or different role here today. Thank you to both of you uh, for coming. Uh, perhaps Tobias, it would be wise to start with you asking you about how it is to work as a German lawyer in Norwegian, in the Norwegian academic system and how this Norwegian academic slash legal system as a whole looks like for a German lawyer. Well, first of all, many thanks for having us in this uh, show. This is really an interesting uh, podcast series that you've created, and thanks a lot for inviting us. Um, so in terms of the legal education here in Norway, it is a system where the three old law faculties in Oslo, Bergen, and Tromsø, they offer a five years master's program, which is the program that qualifies you to act as a lawyer but then in recent years also smaller universities have started offering bachelor programs in law but then in order to fully qualify as a lawyer you would have to switch to one of the three old law faculties um, which is a challenging thing to do mm -hmm. and uh, so after five years of law studies of a master's uh, then one would then uh, start practicing and uh, practicing for a couple of years um, in order to actually work as a lawyer. And compared to Germany, it's much more uh, integrated in the sense that when you start practicing, you're a junior lawyer, you, you're not fully qualified, but you're just working as any other junior lawyer in a firm. And then after some years, and I think you have to have three or five cases, I don't remember, in court, uh, you, will, you will be fully qualified. So the, the change, uh, there is so, so there are no state exams like in Germany and the, 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 it's more a gradual um, evolution mm -hmm. after um, you qualify as a lawyer. 
And mm-hmm. in, in academia, and- it's, it's um, well, actually, I must say I was, I was a bit surprised at the relatively high number of uh, foreigners at law faculties, at least in Oslo. Um, I wasn't so much used to that from Germany. But here we had colleagues from Australia, like Malcolm and, and Lee Bygraven uh, and um, Italy. And, and so it was, it was, in a sense, more international. And I think uh, most of our international colleagues work more with international perspectives, which is, of course, challenging when you have a law school that does regular legal education for Norwegian law. Yeah. And how do you solve this then? Is it the foreigners mainly teaching in the in the master and postgraduate programs, and 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 the Norwegians teaching the undergraduates? I or? think it's a mix. Um, in my case, I'm teaching IT law, so that's the fifth year or the LLM program, and and it's all in English. Um, for some of our colleagues who did the more international perspectives in um, civil law they also were asked to do more of the teaching in uh, the first years. So, and, and I, I know that Malcolm mm-hmm. is also involved in much more in the uh, first years of education teaching. I'm, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. do you teach constitutional law, Malcolm? Yeah, so I teach uh, international law and some constitutional law in Norwegian, which was a, a special challenge for a foreigner. Yeah, and and uh and uh, the interesting just to hear that i mean are, are is the, is the norwegian constitution available in english so could it could it could you teach this in english i mean is there an official translation available of it could you teach it in english yeah so i do have a, a, an elective course uh, previously where we covered the norwegian constitution uh in english um it's a strange document adopted in 1914 uh in old danish and has never really been updated so actually the Constitution is not formally in Norwegian, um, so even Norwegians struggle to read it um, in, in their own language. Okay. In, the, in the compulsory courses, I, I cover the cover it in Norwegian, uh, and then we also compare it to other other constitutions. Yeah. So, so one of the, I mean, th- this is already something which is very interesting for for a German speaker to see how 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 interesting the the language situation in Norway is already when it's. I mean, just Danish, Swedish, Norwegian, and so on, all of them used in a way in the legal, some of them at least uh, constantly in, in the legal debate. Um, but also when it comes to the faculty, that it's so common that, that the faculty is from all over the world, which is very different from, from the German-speaking countries. And I think it would be, I mean, I was the only non-German when I lived in Germany at the faculty, um, and there are there are some Germans now teaching in Vienna, but there is no no one teaching uh, Austrian law who doesn't have German as a mother tongue. And I think it would be very weird uh, for most of my colleagues to, I don't know, to have an Italian or an Australian or, or a French teaching Austrian slash German law. But that's not really an issue where you teach at the moment, correct? It, and, it is an issue and it's not an issue. I mean, a, there is a major debate yeah. in Norway, as in many other European countries, about the number of international uh, lecturers. That debate tends mm-hmm. to be particularly strong in law, humanities and the social sciences, uh, where language is very much connected to, to, to the discipline. Um, at the same time, we've seen in Norway, uh, many foreigners learn the language and come up to a level in, in which they can teach. 
Germans, such as Tobias, are quite quick to learn Norwegian, uh, and partly because <laughs> the you know the, the Scandinavian languages have a Germanic background. But there's two written versions in Norway, and there's lots of dialects, so there are lots of challenges for Germans uh, as as well. Um, but I think it's also because I've also uh, been employed at a German university, University of Mannheim. And I think there's a slightly different, mm -hmm. there's a difference in the academic culture, or at least structure. Uh, it, it is less hierarchical, even though there is a strong hierarchy uh, there. But it's a little bit more, it's a little flatter uh, in, in its um, approach. And also positions began to be advertised across the universities in English from the early 2000s. And so there was an opening up to international uh, competition, which has allowed foreigners to compete um, uh, on, on equal grounds. And if a position demands uh, teaching in Norwegian, for example, then you can also show that you can teach Norwegian through a trial lecture, for example. Mm -hmm. I see. And was that a decision taken by the, by the leading personnel of the universities or is this an outcome of the, of the more open-minded culture or, or both? Part of the internationalization of the universities and the whole Bologna process that began, you know, 20 or so years mm -hmm. ago, but also because many had complained about uh, uh, appointment systems that favored insiders. And this particularly affected women. <laughs> uh, and so once you began to have a more transparent appointment system with adver uh, advertising in Norwegian and English, you started to also uh, attract foreigners as well as uh, female, uh, female applicants. Uh, to mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the minimum requirement to apply successfully for a professorship would be a PhD plus a second book, or is there any standardized... Well, uh, you usually start as an associate professor. So that means with a mm -hmm. PhD and a law degree, you can apply for an associate professorship. And then you can keep qualifying mm -hmm. until you have written the second book or some equivalent, uh, in which case you then become a full professor. So that, that but that also means that it's still an insider. I mean, the step from associate to full is still mainly for insiders then. So it's difficult to come into the system on a full professorship yes. level. So you, you, well, not necessarily. You, you would basically apply for a position which is either associate or full professor, depending on your qualifications. And then you mm -hmm. will be put into one or the other category. And then you can keep qualifying if you have haven't qualified to full professor from the beginning. And, and so mm -hmm. in a sense, mm -hmm. I would say it's, it's an open system. And also the committees assessing candidates are usually quite international or at least re relatively broad. In my case, it was, it was fully international. Mm -hmm. That's also because there are so few law faculties. So in order to avoid too much insider knowledge and, uh, favorites, um, mm -hmm. it, it's just a more objective process. So, so quite often um, the, the committee is, is just consisting of uh, people who don't even work at the faculty and uh, it's just administered by one person at the faculty. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And how do the universities compete? I mean, if, what is the main difference between the three of them when it comes to the, to, the, to the academic labor market and when it comes to the students? Are there any traditional differences? Is Oslo, I don't know, the, the more uh, fundamental law oriented or, is, is, or the more international one? Or, is it, or how, how do students decide where to go and where, how do academics decide where to go? 
I mean, it, in Norway, we, we have very few law faculties uh, per, per, um, per population. Um, when we compare it, for example, to Australia, where you've got, you know, 25 law faculties mm -hmm. and 25 million people, we have in Norway 5 million people, but only three uh, law faculties. And, and the Norwegian mm -hmm. law faculty goes back to the, in Oslo, goes back to the time of the constitution. So, you know, it's been here more than... Uh, 200 years, so long traditions, mm -hmm. and was traditionally regarded as the more conservative um, in teaching mm -hmm. methods. It's also quite close to uh, <clears throat> government powers, whether it's the courts, the executive, and the parliament. And many of our professors mm -hmm. over time have been politicians and prime ministers and, and so forth. Bergen then came mm -hmm. uh, 60 or 70 uh, years ago, and then Trump's uh, after that. Bergen was more um, experimental with teaching, and Tromsø provides a bit more expertise on issues that are relevant to the Arctic, for example. There's a lot of things happening in the Arctic with climate change, with use of natural resources, Sami indigenous rights, and, and so forth. But what's happening now is interesting with these new centres of excellence um, and a whole range of other funding for pedagogical uh, innovation. Is the University of Oslo now has also began to experiment and innovate in many areas. And, and as has the University of Tromsø, uh, with more emphasis on uh, pr procedure, use of mooting competitions in teaching and so forth. So it's difficult to say uh, what are the clear differences today. And now we're cooperating, all three law faculties, through Cell Norway, which we're setting up, so that we actually learn mm -hmm. from each other and adopt each other's reforms as we go forward. So it's an exciting time, actually, right now for legal education in Norway. Yeah. Yeah, and legal education, as it looks like at the moment in Norway, is mainly online, right? Or well, only online? Or what? I mean, how, well, how is it today? Well, it depends, today? really. Um, so my courses in English are only online. But uh, for, mm -hmm. for the traditional Norwegian law um, teaching, there are some, some I think, is it, which years are, are offered? Is it the first year, Malcolm? that is offered actually yes, on campus. Yes, so for the five-year Master of Law that uh, Tobias talked about, which you need to qualify as, as mm. a legal advocate, we decided the first year would be partially uh, uh, physical and partially online to enable the students to actually mm -hmm. have some feeling of the new university they've just joined. So they have all their lectures mm -hmm. digital, but the courses and seminars are fully physical. Same for fourth mm -hmm. year, because that's probably the hardest year. There's a very heavy course on criminal law that many struggle with. So that we faculty also prioritise that year for physical uh, course uh, teaching. And then for the second year, the mm -hmm. third year, the fifth year and in the international programmes, uh, you only get one course day uh, physically. The rest of teaching is uh, digital. Yeah. And Tobias, in your case, uh, the students are not even in Norway, right? I mean, well, many yes. of them at least. Um, I'm teaching an LLM program, and my students were not even allowed into Norway. So the government just decided that they wouldn't give out visas for students. And then my students are somewhere between China and South America. So it's an issue also with time zones mm -hmm. when we do teaching. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and how do you teach then? Is it is it live online? You speaking and then it, it's a mixture. So or? we we do pre-record mm -hmm. some uh, lectures, and then we have Zoom meetings like this one where we discuss with students. And um, yeah, yeah. 
and it works in your view. So, so well, students are happy, the, and you the, are happy the with the situation. The semester just started a few weeks ago, so we are still experimenting, and we are still trying to find yeah. out some of the functions in Zoom which work differently from what you expect. And suddenly, the breakout rooms don't work yeah. as you plan to, and all of these uh, mistakes are still being committed as we speak. Um, so, yeah. so I think yeah. it, it works uh, to some degree, and we are really certainly in the learning process. Yeah. And Malcolm, for you, this must be a kind of a dream, right? I mean, running a center for experiential learning and then having such a situation, that's I mean, the best thing that can happen, right? I have been called Dr. Zoom uh, many times. <laughs> um, I used, yeah. I've been working with Zoom for around two years. So the 12th of March, yeah. Norway closed down. Uh, that's when we went into a, a full yeah. lockdown. And in the next few days at Cell, including with uh, Tobias and a, a digital course coordinator, we worked around the clock to develop digital resources for teachers. We held an introduction to Zoom on Sunday, the 15th of, of March for lecturers. We started a national Facebook group for all academic teachers in Norway, which now has 4,000, almost 4,500 members, uh, where academic teachers across Norway ask questions, they share advice. We've had more than 25 webinars uh, and so forth. So in that sense, it was a, was a, it was a dream in order to um, yeah. uh, actually show the potential for, for online education, mm -hmm. but it was perhaps not the most ideal way to do it uh, in a crisis situation. But what we saw across yeah. Norway was basically academic teachers dropped everything, dropped research and just you know, threw themselves into it and really tried to master it. We've done a number of uh, evaluations of, of how that's gone and, and the revolt results are diverse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, interestingly, I, if I see correctly, uh, Zoom was not really uh, under debate, right? So it was quite clear that you would use this, whereas in, in German and Austrian universities, there were clear issues uh, when it came to the usage of Zoom. And at, le at, at least in, in Vienna, for example, it's not really supported uh, officially as one of the, the platforms to be used. Different in Norway? Well, we start, obviously. I, I, think, yeah, I think the university yeah. started purchasing Zoom half a year before Corona hit, which means that by the mm -hmm. time uh, Corona hit, it was ready. And they had done an assessment of uh, the security aspects mm -hmm and ended up with an architecture where the Zoom servers that we use are situated in, in Denmark, I think. So um, then mm -hmm. when, when uh, the coronavirus situation hit us, the only thing we had to do was add more servers to uh, the Zoom architecture because there was so much more uh, need for bandwidth, but otherwise everything was, was in place. So this is a consortium mm -hmm. of universities that runs the servers and then they collaborate with Zoom so that uh, actually everything is, is going through um, the Zoom servers in, in Scandinavia. And then of course, when the debates about uh, Zoom started in the media, many teachers became concerned and we had to go back and, and explain what has ha what had happened previously and we had to get the assurances from the uh, university's IT department that, that they had assessed the situation that we were GDPR, GDPR compliant and and then basically it, it just worked mm -hmm. 
we basically mm -hmm. had a, a Nordic solution uh, to Zoom, and uh, which meant we avoided many of the problems elsewhere. We did get Zoom bombed once. So that was an interesting experience when I was leading a webinar. I had uh, two university chancellors on a panel and a Zoom bomber waited uh, for three, three minutes until it started and then had seven different profiles and Zoom bombed the, uh, the meeting. But we learned from that and we also upgraded to, to Zoom webinar when we use, uh, when we have public events and we publicize the, the mm -hmm. Zoom uh, uh, link. I see. And, and Zoom is integrated in some kind of uh, learning platform that is provided by each university. So, okay. And that is based on, on Moodle or what, what do you use? We use Canvas. Okay. And so then you can integrate, uh, okay. actually it's just links, uh, but you yeah. can generate a Zoom room through Canvas. Yeah, okay. And that works properly and everyone's well, happy. Well, I yeah. think it, it okay. works. It's it's still a learning curve for for some of our colleagues and including myself. Sometimes you make mistakes, you press the wrong button, and then it doesn't work as intended. But mm -hmm. I think in general it works. And just to give yeah. you an example, so when we did a survey of national teachers uh, in in uh, late March, early April, we found that found that only thirty percent had ever done at least one lecture before uh, wholly digitally but now 80% mm -hmm. use Zoom. So it was a sort mm -hmm. of phenomenal uh, transformation uh, in terms of basic uh, digital uh, competences. But when we mm -hmm. ask both students and lecturers what they think about the learning outcomes, then it varies dramatically. Uh, mm -hmm. We see around 40% of students and teachers on average across many surveys saying that online education despite the COVID-19 lockdown and all the restrictions, was actually the same or better than ordinary teaching. Around 40% mm -hmm. saying it's a little bit worse and then 20% saying it's much worse. So there's mm -hmm. real different experiences of, of, of what online education can do. Uh, but also mm -hmm. we see that students that received interactive online education and live, a bit like was Tobias talking about, whether it's discussion, breakout rooms, a case study, uh, working on particular questions, whatever it is, uh, and it's also live, then those students reported offer often better learning outcomes. So mm -hmm. that's what we see mm -hmm. right now in the second semester of uh, online teaching uh, is an attempt to try and make online education more active and more suitable for, for learning processes. And do you teach the professors in how to achieve this or is everyone trying his or her very best independently? Um, partly. Um, I mean, one of the things about teaching is it's largely privatized. Um, mm. So unlike in primary or secondary school, you know, we, we basically employ people who've spent most of their lives researching something and uh, writing books. Mm. And then we give them incredible power and responsibility to teach. And that's 50% of their job but absolutely no training in how that should be uh, done. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Some universities have systems to try and ensure some basic pedagogical competences uh, for professors. But I think what was interesting about the COVID-19 lockdown is everyone discovered that they had actually a need for more training, uh, both on online education, but also perhaps uh, interactive uh, uh, education. So we've seen an increase mm -hmm. in demand for that. And there has been partly a supply. I mean, I named the Facebook group. Many universities and agencies have webinars and, and so forth. But I would still mm -hmm. say that we still don't have a really good system 
for ensuring that it's sufficient, that most professors have basic pedagogical competence, and it also improves over time and is updated with new developments. Mm -hmm. But the Facebook group looks very much like a grassroots movement in a way, right? So exactly the opposite of what I, uh, I, I would have expected in a way from, from university leadership in such a situation, right? But, yeah, um, university leadership. So we've been a bit critical. Um, there was no real emergency mm -hmm. plan in place. Mm -hmm. Universities, which are on the more the outskirts of Norway, in the mountains and the fjords, we're much better prepared because they've been doing much more online teaching, but the big old universities had to struggle to really ensure the infrastructure soft and hard on campus and off campus. Um, some academic leaders really rose to the occasion and provided real leadership. Others disappeared. Uh, but the Facebook group was a, it was a great environment where academic teachers could find each other and they often trusted each other more. Uh, and that also came up in our survey we found that they were more likely mm -hmm. to ask a colleague than to ask a pedagogical expert or an IT uh, expert, better or worse. Uh, yeah. yeah, interesting. And and do you systematically analyze what, I mean, whether there is any, for example, any relationship between students' success and, their, and, and, and how content they are about the online teaching format? Are there, or about students' priorities or characters and, and so on? Or, or is it just that you ask an overall question in how, in how far they were happy with the outcome? Well, I think success is probably more difficult to assess because in the corona semester during the spring, our faculty adopted a policy whereby uh, the only grades given were pass and fail. So in, in that mm -hmm. situation, most students passed. And then it is, I don't know, did you try, Malcolm did lots of, lots of empirical studies there. Did you try and, and look at some correlations between passing grades and uh, whether the students were content, Malcolm? So there's two things there. So we did find in some subjects, the failure rate increased. Um, but one of the explanations for that is that more students actually took the exam because they thought it might be easier to pass with pass-fail, uh, but didn't actually do the study. Um, so there's that. And then the second thing is that we do have some major studies. For example, there's one with 10,000 students who have answered an evaluation at the University of Oslo. And there's a big debate now as to whether we can link those answers to the grades that they've got in different uh, uh, subjects. Not sure, but hopefully this semester will design a new evaluation instrument that can precisely do that, link to, link to grades, and, and produce what we now call as learning analytics uh, in, in evaluation of education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there are, so there is no outcome yet that you could report for it. No, but for it, just let me show you one example. I mean, my, my very personal, not really scientifically validated experience so far is that uh, online teaching makes it much easier to address introverts um, who are students, right? So normally they tend to not talk in, in, in a physical class and, and, and it's much easier for them to, to interact um, using a chat functionality or something like this. And I have it just as my gut feeling at the moment that I would really appreciate to have some, some kind of you know, hard figures about this, uh, but they are not available yet, are they? What we see across the education sector, um, primary, secondary, and, and tertiary, is that there are a, there's a large group of students who thrive with 
complete online education. Uh, my daughter, you know, she, for her, it was great. You know, she could concentrate on her schoolwork without being distracted uh, so much. But she also missed the, the, the classroom environment. But we see that in all of our studies that there is a, there's a clear group of students who think who thinks that online education is much better than ordinary education. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the clear results of COVID-19 is to help us to understand that students are different. They need different types of teaching methods and different types of assessment methods. And therefore we should vary both to, in order that all students receive a teaching and assessment uh, you know, offer that, that, that at times suits them uh, particularly. And it's not, doesn't just suit mm -hmm. one particular type of student. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk perhaps a little bit, if you don't mind, about the assessment system in Norway. So, uh, the the how are grades normally achieved? Is it is it the, the German way of solving cases in in a limited time, or or is it more writing academic papers or papers that are similar to academic papers, or is it a mixture of both? And how did and or is it oral examinations? And how did all this well, change now? It used to be very much similar to Germany, where you had cases that needed to mm -hmm. be solved. Um, but then a few years ago, at least at our faculty, there was a process assessing whether it would be possible to do something else. And there was a committee, and the committee yeah. re recommended to open up uh, the system and say, well, now we can, we can have different types of exams we started introducing more term papers first. So only term papers mm -hmm. uh, being written throughout the semester and often um, with quite a bit of choice for the students what to write on. So discuss questions related to mm -hmm. something, la la la, and then you, you fill in the blanks and you, you write a rather individual uh, thesis-like uh, paper. Um, over, and mm -hmm. then it, it we, we also started some reforms. So, um, for example, I teach a, a course on robot regulation now, where the exam is that a, a group of students has to create a film on robots and how they should be regulated. And then they submit a 30 minutes film, which is assessed um, by, by the teachers with a, with a group grade. And then there is an oral exam where we watch the film and discuss um, so, so mm -hmm. those things have become uh, possible and, and it's, it's really a different way of teaching and assessing the students. Uh, but one that uh, I think is also fun, at least uh, for, for us. Yeah. I mean, it's completely unthinkable under the German system that a lawyer might be, I mean, might become a lawyer by, by producing a film um, in a group and then discussing the income. And uh, <laughs> that, that, that's really interesting. So I, I, would, I would assume that this tendency has now even uh, increased, right? And, and, and become more important because it's difficult to ask students to solve cases uh, well, in an online well, actually, environment. This was right? a bit inspired by the German seminar tradition where you as a mm -hmm. student, at least when I was a student, I gave a presentation and had a paper. So then it's just a group presentation yeah. and uh, still the individual paper. And then um, from there on, from the group presentation, why not do a film? And then, so what the students actually first do is they give a presentation without a grade, and then they work further with that presentation, create mm -hmm. a film on the base of that presentation and submit the film. Yeah. 
It's yeah. actually now part of a sort of systematic work where we've had a lot of experiments in the elective subjects and we're taking them over to the mm. compulsory subjects. So you have a mm. class like Tobias where they make a film. I've been um, co course coordinator for a subject called Legal Technology, Artificial Intelligence and the Law. And there the exam is a group project where you develop a prototype for a new form of legal technology. Uh, some, you know, for example, a bot to help you calculate uh, how much inheritance uh, you get and so forth. We have another subject where you actually write legislation, where you basically get a mandate, for example, from a government department or a local municipality to consider a new law on a topic. So, for example, one of the groups mm -hmm. got a request from the Oslo municipality on how do we regulate electric scooters. So they had to do like a public commission report in the same way the, it's done by a government panel and then come up with a proposal to new, for new legislation or new regulations on how things are done. And then what we're doing in five areas, particularly these sort of experiential or um, experience-based learning methods that test your oral skills, your written skills, digital, uh, practical, and, and, and uh, dispute resolution, integrate that in the compulsory subjects. So I've done that, for example, in international law in second year, where you actually have to do a moot, okay, before the International Court of Justice. Um, and that's actually not graded but you have to pass it in order to take the exam. And what we've found is that students put a lot of effort into that and actually start reading the judgments of the International Court of Justice for the first time and not just uh, the, the textbook. And so that's part of the sort of the transformation that we're looking at. And some of these things can also be graded, uh, you know, perhaps in the future that uh, moot before the International Court of Justice will actually get a grade that you'll have on your uh, CV. And that's also true for the very fundamental first-year subjects, like I don't know, constitutional law or, or private law. That that approach. Yeah, and in fact, in, in private law, there's been uh, we've actually cancelled grades for the first semester, uh, so that mm -hmm. students can really focus on developing their basic legal skills, their writing skills, how they work in groups. Mm -hmm. uh, the moot now in second year has been expanded from international law to increasingly include constitutional law, and national mm -hmm. uh, uh, human rights so there's a there's a gradual expansion into new fields uh, as we go along mm -hmm. uh, in contract law now there'll be a new exercise from next year where you have to negotiate a contract uh, i'm not sure mm -hmm. if like me i mean like you i mean i never read i saw an actual contract when i studied contract law in australia it's been the same mm -hmm. here but now you have to you have to draft one against with, with two, you know two groups of students with an exercise you get the experience of seeing and drafting a contract, but you'll also learn more deeply about contract law because the issues you have to struggle with are actually related to theory. Mm -hmm. And and do you think that your your fellow colleagues support this <laughs> development, or is it something that they need to do, or that they think that they need to do because of COVID? Actually, this uh, these developments precede COVID nineteen, so that has been happening mm -hmm. over many years. So we've seen digitalization in teaching so we've we've done we've done uh, podcasts of all our lectures all our lecture halls have podcasting facilities and then these new developments in terms of different teaching styles are are introduced by individuals who who really want to try out something new and well i think um, most most of our colleagues are perhaps first uh, a bit reluctant uh, but then when they see that it's actually possible to do that and that you can achieve at least the same uh, 
with these methods, uh, then perhaps you can you can convince them to also try out something new. So I think, in a sense, mm -hmm. we are in a in a situation where a lot of uh, development is going on and where new things are possible that were unthinkable a few years ago, and and that was in place already when the corona situation hit us. Mm -hmm. And you would expect that uh, the outcome of all this will be that not everything will be brought back to the status quo ante uh, when corona is over, right? So there is some development in this. Because I think in many of the universities in my environment that I see, many of the colleagues that I see there, as far as I see it, um, have the feeling that uh, they need to survive one or two or three exceptional semesters and then everything will be just like before and that that is what they want. Uh, but but what you tell me here sounds a little bit different. Well, I mean, there are some people who said back in March that we've, we've had 15 years development uh, in pedagogy in, in, in one month, you know, in terms of the IT side mm -hmm. of uh, things. Um, there's been a, was a major debate in Norway amongst academic teachers. How much should we take with us <laughs> uh, into uh, the future? But where you see broad consensus is flipped classroom, which is what Tobias talked about earlier, where you do a pre-record uh, of, of the more theoretical aspects of your teacher and then use more class time to go in depth, to have more interaction. Mm -hmm. And almost all academic teachers understand, well, that saves time. Uh, it's more effective, uh, but I also can get more direct contact uh, with students. So I think that's one area we'll see uh, con continuing. But also I think that Corona has forced us to think about how we teach. It's, it's sort of a bit of a shock to the system. And so I think we can also see perhaps a greater openness amongst a broader group of academic teachers. That being said, like in Germany, there's lots of academic teachers who would like to go back tomorrow to how things were. Uh, so it's, it's a divided uh, uh, profession, uh, to, to say it like that. But one thing we do have in, in Norway is these centers of excellence and also smaller pots of funding for interactive teaching, digitalization of teaching. It's possible to apply for money to, to start these projects. And that means also being able to give finances to your colleagues who may be a bit skeptical to say, look, uh, here you get 20, 30 extra mm -hmm. hours of in your teaching bank to try something new. Um, here's the money, here's some resources, here's some teaching assistance. So that's also helping change uh, uh, the system and trying to put education on the same level as, as, as research. Yeah, which is probably not the case yet, right? So it's quite like everywhere else that you should be excellent in research and and that's decisive for your career and teaching is a nice to have but not not more yes exactly. yeah and then we mm. had a legal change mm. also going back to what tobias was talking about with promotion to being a professor yes it's uh, mm. you know the one uh, two times a phd that you need to have uh actually three times mm. if you're in the social sciences or natural sciences um but now it's also your teaching uh, competences and that's part mm -hmm. of the application for a professorship. You have to have a big folder showing all the teaching you've done, how you've sought to improve yourself uh, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that has a role in the selection process? Well, it has, has a role in the, whether you go from associate professor to professor, but it can also mm -hmm. have a role now in when you apply to be an associate professor. So if there's two candidates mm -hmm. who are equally excellent on, on research, 
then the, the, the candidate has more teaching experience will be clearly preferred. But even if this one is just a little bit better on research, we're seeing now in quite a few appointment processes, if, you've had, if you were very strong in education, you can actually jump over mm. that candidate. And that mm. often comes out in the trial lecture. Mm. So everything is, that you said is true for the Gemma situation, apart from the very last sentence. So I've not seen, oh, I do not remember very many cases where, where excellence in teaching then, then was used as a substitute for some weaknesses in research. So it's, if, 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 if two are, I mean, if there were the, the theoretical situation that two are really equal in research, that might play a role. But in the moment, one of them is stronger in research. That is the decisive factor. That was here. in Norway, but, it, but it, we see it changing in, in, in multiple appointment processes. Sometimes it's a bit questionable because mm -hmm. it, it, it increases the subjective element there. So there's been debate around some appointments where they've changed the ranking based on the trial lecture and educational experiences. But others have been, you know, mm -hmm. the students have been very, very clear uh, that we want that mm -hmm. professor who was ranked two uh, from an educational perspective and the students have carried the day. Students participate mm -hmm. also in these processes, both formally and informally. Yeah. Perhaps let's go back once again to the student situation. Are there any concerns about the legal implications of all these changes uh, in, in the educational system when it comes to surveillance, data protection, privacy, copyright, etc.? Or is this, I mean, is there so much chaos that nobody really thinks about the the consequences so far? Well, we've had some discussions about uh, data privacy and, and security in, in terms of the use of uh, Zoom. So in, in as I mentioned, um, we, we started podcasting a few years ago in the lecture halls, but the cameras were set up in a way mm -hmm. that they wouldn't pick up the student faces and the microphones would only mm -hmm. pick up the lecturer. So, uh, in practice, I always had to repeat the question so that it would be on the uh, on the record. Um, now, when you yeah. when you record something in Zoom, then you have a different situation. So then the the, the situation and mm -hmm. and we we actually had the default that all the lectures were recorded when they were held in the lecture halls because it was so easy to press the record button that eventually most most colleagues did. Um, on Zoom, it was more challenging. So when you have a lot of interaction with students, should you then record? Mm. Um, what part of the, of the session should you record? And, um, but we also have IT people who can help us. So I, I, I ended up with a, with a bad recording a few weeks ago uh, where student faces showed up and, and then we just got rid of them um on on the video before we put it up uh, for the other students to view mm -hmm. so this is an issue mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and there is also this balance between um on the one hand you could tell all the students don't switch on your cameras but then you sit in in front of uh, a black screen and you don't see any reactions you don't see whether they start uh, falling asleep and so so i often mm -hmm. start with breakout rooms because then students switch on their cameras, they talk to each other, they are more alert. And then we go back to the plenary session and I have them visible so I can also talk to them while I'm speaking rather than everybody just switching off their cameras and um, being in a sense off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 
one of the one of the issues many of my colleagues complain about here uh, is that students uh, do not switch on their camera uh, and they are very re reluctant in 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 being visible um on on any video platform um which is as if i understand you correctly the same in norway well, I, right um my, in principle at least if you if you are in a plenary session you are standing in front of well, a black I, screen i think it really depends i mm. Uh, this semester, well, last semester, that, that turned out to be the case in some of the uh, lectures where students didn't know each other from before. In my lectures, I just said, well, mm. you all switch on your cameras, let's talk to, to each other. And that was okay. And then this semester, I started out with, uh, with a message to the students in advance, telling them why I want them to have their cameras on. And then I started with a breakout session where they should say hello to each other, which is when they have to switch on their cameras anyway. And then when they come back to the main room in Zoom, then the cameras are on and we can talk to each other. Yeah. And so yeah. one of the things about CELL is we also have student leaders in our organization. So there's actually a student co-director with me. There's a student leader in every pillar. Mm -hmm. For example, Tobias has a student leader in his uh, digital uh, pillar. And they actually mm -hmm. launched a campaign last semester <clears throat> uh, asking students to turn the camera on, you know, uh, no mm -hmm. more black, fa you know, black faces mm -hmm. on the um, on, on camera. But it is a challenge from a privacy uh, perspective as we go forward. Yeah, indeed. And there are so many other privacy <laughs> challenges in, in the situation since March. Uh, Malcolm, you wrote a blog article that I read in preparation of this, uh, of this uh, conversation, which gave me an excellent overview about the fundamental rights implication, um, um, not only at the university, but for the whole society in Norway uh, since March 2012th um, of this year. Would you kindly... Uh, um, condense this uh, shortly and give an overview about what the the situation is on a general level in Norway at the moment? Yeah, so 12th of March, the, the country uh, closed down and then within a day or two, we uh, a proposal was developed for emergency power bills, uh, amongst other things, which would basically be a, you know, a state of emergency where the government would have extensive powers to pass legislation without the approval of the parliament. Uh, over a, a period of a year. But Parliament, if a, a, a third of Parliament objected to a particular uh, rule or essentially new law part, uh, by the executive, then it could be uh, uh, overturned. Um, there was a massive uh, uh, pushback, including by many law professors at this faculty and other faculty uh, uh, to this. And we got an amended uh, sort of uh, Corona law, as it was called, uh, which only went for one month. Uh, and was more uh, limited uh, in what the, the executive uh, could do and, and, and more subject to judicial review powers. It was extended for a further month mm -hmm. and then it finished uh, in, in, in late May. Um, so there's been a major debate around what the government can do. There were also, for example, everyone was banned from going to their caverns um, uh, in the first few months of uh, the, the corona lockdown. And, you know, if you talk about Norwegians and fundamental rights, then the cavern is core to the, uh, the Norwegian identity, being up in the mountains uh, or, or, or on the fjord. Uh, but like other countries, we've had uh, also other issues um, where different measures by the government have had direct and indirect impact uh, on human rights uh, and the rule of law. Um, and asylum seekers, for example, have particularly struggled to get their cases heard or even come to the country. 
Children have been particularly uh, uh, neglected or vulnerable children. Schools were closed. All the, the health sisters who worked in schools had to work with infection rather than following up uh, our children. And then as we talk about in the, uh, in the, uh, the, op, the uh, blog with Christine Sumvik, who's a colleague of Tobias and myself, uh, is the Smith to Stop app. So these sort of tracking applications to try and help the health authorities determine uh, who's been potentially affected, who have you been in proximity to, uh, so they can actually do the tracing much more uh, effectively. We could talk for a long time about the process of the development of this uh, uh, tracking app uh, in terms of tendering processes, involvement of the private sector, uh, and so forth. But they launched the app and they encouraged everybody to, 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 to download it. Um, and, and millions of Norwegians uh, did. Uh, but then it's been recently stopped in its tracks uh, because there was a whole lot of issues precisely around uh, privacy. Mm -hmm. And and the usage was based on on informed consent. So there was no law asking uh, the citizens to well, install there, the app. No, it was consent. But then there was also a, a local regulation that uh, was the legal basis. But the, the the issue was that it was in a sense a double consent, both um, to be, be tracked for the purposes of finding out who you have been in contact with and also a general permission to do research. And it was not possible to say, I only want to be tracked for the purposes mm -hmm. of, of finding out uh, who yes, um, mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the more specifics of uh, the, the infection and not the general mm -hmm. tracking. And then it was also centrally stored, all the data were centrally stored and, and there mm -hmm. were, it was it was a general lack of privacy by design, and lack of options mm -hmm. for for everyone. And and this was developed by the government, or was it a private player? Well, Malcolm, probably you know more the, about, was it built? about the details. It was it was a, a research institute uh, collaborating with other private actors and the um, what do you call Folkehilse Institute in Norway in, in English, Malcolm. The health uh, uh, director, public health institute, yeah, the government public health institute, yeah. mm -hmm. and it's completely stopped now. So it's not used anymore. The whole system and the data is deleted, or the data is some is stored somewhere, <laughs> waiting for reuse. Or I think the data is deleted. Yes, um, they deleted it immediately mm -hmm. after Strange. they got a mm -hmm. notice from the data inspectorate saying that this is illegal. And you have to stop it. Um, or I think the data inspectorate, sorry to intervene, yes, is the, the data, data protection, protection authority. authority right? so, said okay. that we we are we are wow. starting an investigation, and it looks like what you're doing here is is illegal under Norwegian law GDPR. And and then um, they basically just uh, deleted uh, all the data that had been collected and stopped collecting wow. it. And and. And that was not contested in public debate. It, it was, I mean, it was contested, I mean, the... um, but at the same time, um, I, 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 th I think it, it, it's still an ongoing situation because uh, I haven't heard much about it in in uh, in recent uh, weeks. Um, but I think the idea was to just delete the uh, all the data for now and then come back with an improved version of the app. But that hasn't happened so far. Malcolm, you have any any more recent information mm -hmm. about that? 
what's happening. Also noted that the major multinationals, as Apple and Google, are also pushing their 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 tracking uh, apps mm -hmm. uh, as we go. And instead, we've seen a massive mm -hmm. increase in employment of human human tra traces uh, throughout the municipalities with the with the second wave of Corona that we're experiencing now. But it was an interesting moment because uh, in the sense that there were many people who would otherwise would be concerned with privacy issues, supported having this, this, this tracing app. I mean, a lot of people wrote on social media, it's, you know, it's our, our duty to download it after considering the issues. You know? So um, it shows that, that, that in a crisis that we can quickly put, put aside privacy concerns and sometimes that's important. Yes. But I think that's one thing we can learn is we perhaps need to take a second round uh, on, on, on how much of privacy rights we wish to um, uh, put aside in, in the midst of an emergency. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting what you say. But still, I think if I, if I understood you correctly, the situation in Norway is still very positive in the sense that academia was very active, that the parliament was very active. Um, so compared with other countries, uh, this looks very much like um, a very rational approach and a very... An, an approach that is very much driven by the rule of law and and some fundamental democratical principles. So, so is there any major thing you would criticize, Malcolm? Any any major error that was that that happened then? I mean, I think in in when many of the positive things that happened were happened through democratic processes where people actually push back against certain mm -hmm. tendencies mm -hmm. uh, to overreact. Um, because uh, you know the Norwegian welfare state and, and system, it's, it's, a, it's a strongly centralized uh, system, uh, and there's incredible trust uh, in the government generally. I mean, Scandinavian countries have the highest levels of trust, so the conditions were very ripe for very, very intrusive forms of, of regulation. Um, if you look at some of our mm -hmm. pandemic laws, uh, they're the strictest in the world, alongside uh, Japan, uh, which have been developed in previous uh, pandemics. But I think there was a pushback mm -hmm. from, from below on, on certain things. And then the government and parliament have adjusted. And I think that's what they can be uh, praised for, including the, the Smith to Stop uh, tracing app. In the end, they, they, they dropped it. Uh, in Finland, actually, that's, mm -hmm. uh, it, they've continued uh, with it and it's been extensively uh, rolled out. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, and, and in many other countries. In some areas, I think it's more, more vulnerable groups who, don't, who, who have less of a voice. Um, Asylum seekers, migrants, um, uh, children, uh, and vulnerable children, and so forth. These groups have perhaps been less heard uh, than others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. So, I mean, just to to bring this on the table, when you when you look into the situation in Germany or in Austria, we we also have the all the issues with the apps, but nobody would have ever dared to to really fully stop the whole system. I think. I mean, politically, that would have been impossible, uh, even if it were, uh, from a legal standpoint, uh, the right way to go. I don't think that any of the authorities ever thought about that uh, seriously. Very interesting, very interesting. And now the situation is that this uh, preliminary law that uh, was in force until end of May, I think, is no longer in force, so everything is back to normal. Partly and partly not in the sense that many of those provisions have been now taken over into normal laws. Uh, so that, mm -hmm. uh, for example, we, in, when it came to courts, a whole lot of emergency provisions had to be written so that courts could function online. 
because a lot of the, the, mm-hmm. the, the criminal process and civil process laws presume, you know, physical court proceedings. And so, uh, but some of those, as I understand, um, provisions have been now uh, continued so that courts can continue to function partly digitally, uh, but it's also, but they've also partly moved back uh, uh, physically. We have a project mm-hmm. now with the Norwegian Court Administration um, where we're looking also to develop a more sustainable uh, digital courtroom. It's a project we actually started yeah. before COVID-19, a year ago. We developed a prototype just before uh, the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, and we're now just employing a developer so that we can have digital courtrooms that actually function well. I mean, Zoom is okay for a digital trial, but there's lots of things you would want uh, that Zoom doesn't yeah. have. For example, the ability uh, uh, to speak with your client uh, without everybody else hearing, mm. you know. I can't speak to Tobias mm. right now without you, Nicholas, hearing. So they're the sorts of things yeah. that we're developing, integrating case management and documents into a, an online uh, digital system. But then we also learn from what works and doesn't work uh, with digitalization of, of courtrooms. For example, one of the things we're seeing mm. is that perhaps key witnesses need to be held physically because Body language yeah. is key to that. But perhaps you don't need to have the advocates in the room. That's less important. Um, so I think mm. going forward, there's a lot to learn from the corona period. We're about to do a survey of judges and how they experienced it uh, and how we design yeah. new technologies uh, for, for legal proceedings. Yeah, and there's plenty of research ongoing as far as I see um, in, in Norway, which is really, really uh, a, a positive and good sign to see. Um, how advanced um, the um, the academic situation there is already. Um, I really appreciate this um, because in the, the the problems are obviously not only relevant in Norway; they are relevant everywhere. But Norway looks very much uh, like being in the lead or one of the leaders when it comes to the um, to to the to the academic um, um, support of all these developments. Would you would you share this impression? Uh, in some areas, we're in in, uh, in the lead, and perhaps because you know we, we we can see that, but we also see that some areas we were very much behind and had to do a catch up. I mean, for example, there's universities in the U.S. like Texas, in Austin, which have been doing fantastic online teaching for the last uh, five years. You know, uh, with mm-hmm. you know they've got mm-hmm. seven teaching assistants in the room. There's three thousand students participating. I mean, so in a global perspective, we can't say that we've leading but i think in a european perspective mm. we've been able to to catch up uh fairly quickly and perhaps because we're a small country a little bit more egalitarian uh we're a very digitalized mm. country and we have the most digital you know financial transactions uh, in, in the world um that it's been a little bit more easy yeah. for us to, to adapt uh to this new environment yeah and tobias i assume that this is also very good news for you because of the of your center right i mean uh, the the oslo center for computers and law is is one of the oldest in the world and i would assume that that uh, uh the situation uh and the visibility of your center has significantly increased since march is this true Sorry, my internet connection just. Uh, yeah, but you're uh, back. Yeah. Uh, somehow quit. Yeah. Could you hear my I'll, question? I'll try to be back in a moment. No, no worries. No worries, Tobias. Uh, no worries. Half but of it. could you? Um, the question is in how, whether the it, situation. It looks, it, it looks better now. Okay, perfect. So the question was in how far uh, your center uh, for computers and law at the University of Oslo has increased in its visibility and in its, in its impact since March. 
I would assume that this was, I mean, you are one of those winning out of the crisis, aren't you? Okay, gone again. Pity, pity. That's the challenge of digital communication. I live on a yeah. farm just yeah. south of Oslo where I've done teaching from my car because I don't have proper internet connection uh, on the farm. So. Yeah, yeah, all of us end up in <laughs> such situations. Yeah. Tobias, are you back? Are you back? I can see you at least. Can you hear us? I'm, I'm back. Yeah, good. So I not necessarily you, you said, yes. right? Uh, am I back? Yeah, you are. Well, you not are. necessarily because, um, because in a sense, um, it, it's also about visibility. So when Malcolm talked about the Facebook group, many mm. of our colleagues are not on Facebook. So they mm. were not visible at all mm. in some of these developments. So it, it's, although a lot of digitization w was happening at all levels, it, it was also new people at the faculty who were taking on new roles and, and becoming uh, more active. And mm -hmm. just the fact that someone teaches IT law doesn't necessarily mean that you know which button to press <laughs> on Zoom necessarily yeah. or yeah. want to spend time on finding out uh, exactly the answer to that question. Yeah. Yeah, that's in, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Wow, wow, that was now. But, but yeah. I, I, go, in go. Sense, it was a pity because. Um, uh, can you still hear me? Yes. Well, we we were just about to celebrate our fiftieth anniversary mm -hmm. when Corona hit, and that had to be cancelled. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean. Uh, I mean, that's unbelievable. 50 was, years of computers and law department. I mean, is, it's probably, is it the oldest in the world? Second oldest. It is the, the second oldest. The Swedes beat us by half a year or a year. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but at uh, the same time, we moved to new offices, which are very nice, very beautiful, as you can to be at this office but just not there. perfect internet connection in all of the rooms uh, yeah okay as I, as you can right now <laughs> yeah okay thank you so much Malcolm and Tobias is there anything that you would like to add anything that I should have asked you um, I'd just like to say it's been wonderful actually to talk across uh, borders about these issues about legal mm -hmm. education and legal systems in a European context and I think that's what COVID-19 and digitalization has also given us We've been able to talk across university boundaries in Norway about how we teach, but now this is the second conversation I've had um, with European colleagues in law faculties in the last week and mm -hmm. about, for example, how mm -hmm. we teach and particularly how we teach law. Uh, so I really hope that th this continues and we start to build a, a European consciousness uh, and global consciousness and, and networks uh, in the teaching of a very national discipline, uh, which is law. Two. Yeah. Tobias, you, I mean, one of the good points we can make is we, we have I, been I trying to do this. The... Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and, and just a congratulations mm -hmm. on your podcast. Yeah. It's wonderful <laughs> to see all the programs, not just yeah. you know, South yeah. Africa yeah. and yeah. other places. Yeah. I think this sort of global conversation, mm -hmm. that, which you are very much a part of, is just fun. Yeah. Yeah. Tobias, do you still want to add something? I, I don't know whether it was, again, the internet issue or, or me interrupting you. I think no. I think given the difficulties with my internet connection, I'll refrain from. Uh, <laughs> <my talk>. 
Okay. Okay, so then thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate this. Um, I will put it online very quickly. Uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. Um, have a good week and all the best to all of you. And Thanks very bye -bye. much, Nicholas. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.